couldn't hear from the back who has the ball pit. It's the it's that DeVries girl who has a ball pit. So Caitlin was gone for three weeks, and I needed some eccentric project to work on, so I built a ball pit in the basement. Now she is free to play with it anytime she wants. As we turn our attention to the book of James, as we continue, I invite you to open your Bibles to James chapter 2, uh, verses 14 through 26. And as you can see on the screen and in your bulletins, the sermon title for today is Faith and or Works. And if you've been reading the book of James or even, even um, just kind of tracking with the general themes of the book, you can already guess that the question of and or works, well, of course it's and, right? It's faith and works. It's a both and, not an either or. And yet, the reason that we draw attention to this is because um, it's also listed in your bulletin, a little description of why we're studying the book of James this, uh, this summer, that this was a contested book in the Reformation era. So 500 years ago, uh, this was a book that had some controversy around it. Now, in the Reformation times, there were the sola statements, uh, sola gratia, saved by grace alone, sola scriptura, led by scripture alone, and sola fides, saved by faith alone. And yet, in our chapter today, as we study James 2, 14 through 26, it is said that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone, not by faith alone. In a way, the historic controversy of the book of James is a reminder that there are times where our theological preferences occasionally bump up against Scripture, and Scripture tells us the exact opposite of what we were saying. And so that is something to hold in tension as we study James 2, 14 through 26 today. Um, as well as a, a great quote from Martin Luther that we'll get to in a little bit. Because it was contested as a works righteousness book. But we'll get there in a minute. As we read J James chapter 2, 14 through 26, pay attention for the ways in which faith and or works operate in this section of Scripture. Let's pray for God's blessing upon the word as we turn our attention to it. God, our Father, may your word be our rule, your Holy Spirit, our teacher, and the glory of Christ, and faithfully living for his kingdom. May that be our primary concern. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food, and if one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe this and shudder. You foolish person. 
Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together. His faith and his actions were working together. And his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Wintertime in West Michigan. Snow, ice, wind, drifts. What would you rather be driving? A car or a truck? Probably a truck. I was going to put pictures on the screen, but then I thought I would have to get a Ford, a Chevy, a GMC, a Toyota, and I just thought, no, no, we're not going to get hung up on the details here. In general, since I couldn't pick which pictures to use, for a, a, a car or a truck, most of us would say, you know what, if it's wintertime, lots of snow, I'd rather be in a truck. I'd rather be up a little bit higher. I'd rather have uh, more ground clearance. I'd rather have a little bit more weight. I'd like the option of four-wheel drive, although even then the analogy breaks down because there's a lot of all-wheel drive available cars. But nonetheless, most of us would opt for the truck. However, somewhere lodged in the back of our minds might also be one other factor and one little proverb that we all heard growing up probably. And that was this, in wintertime, any vehicle is only as good as its tires. Anyone ever t- tell that to you? Heard that a lot. Because when I would take my dad's truck in the wintertime, he would always remind me, remember, the vehicle is only as good as its tires. Because ultimately, the tires are going to determine quite literally where the rubber meets the road. If the truck has bald tires and the car has brand new snow tires, you're better off in the car. You might say, you know what, I'd still take the truck because at least I'm higher up. Well, if you run into a a drift at some point, the truck with bald tires is going to be just as stuck as the car that that can't crush through the drift. James is so practical about living our life as an expression of our faith that what he's really after here is where does the rubber meet the road? Because a vehicle is only as good as its tires once it's slippery out. And in the same way, James is pushing again and again, not abandoning the importance of faith, but saying, if your faith does not have any action that accompanies it or fulfills it or sustains it or gives evidence to it, then what really is it? Sure, you could be in a great, well-built, heavy truck. But if your bald tires are spinning on the ice, you're no better off than anyone else. The same way, by analogy, James is pushing us to remember that you might have great eloquence and articulation 
around the articles of faith. You might have deep ontological certainty of what you believe. You might have the most coherent epistemology, the ideas that we believe, and you might be able to explain it all really, really well. You might have all of those things, and it might be fancy and beautiful. But if there's no action that accompanies all of the things that you say you believe, then what really is it? Does it have an impact on your life? Or is faith then kind of like a four-wheel drive truck with bald tires sitting stuck in the snow? It's a question of where the rubber meets the road. And one of the main reasons that we keep this context in mind throughout the whole book of James, and I applaud you if you're reading it once a week, and if so, you're, you're probably guessing some of the things that will, how we'll cover things in the future, and I'm I'm good with that. You can outsmart me every day of the week. If you're reading your Bible, that's great. But at the beginning of the book of James, the letter is addressed to the 12 tribes that are scattered among the nations. Scattered. Getting distant, getting separated from one another. And the first teaching point that James gave us in chapter 1 was to consider it pure joy when we face trials of many kinds. James is interested in our faith, in what we believe, in how we articulate it, in what is in our head and our heart. But also, where the rubber really meets the road is when trials happen, or when doing the right thing isn't the easiest thing, then are we grounded? Are we moving in faith? Or are we stuck? The 12 tribes scattered among the nations are starting to experience Uh, some of the first glimpses of persecution. It will be a few decades before there's kind of the empire-wide persecution, but it has begun in more regional areas. In James's day, he is giving us this practical reminder to make sure that when it comes to matters of faith, the rubber meets the road, kind of making sure that your walk and your talk line up with one another and that you're not just running stuck in a beautiful and eloquent, yet stuck nonetheless, place. The Reformation controversy really started with Martin Luther as he assessed all of the different books of the Bible. And in uh, Luther's complete works, he prefaces different sections of the Bible and, and really weighs them out. And Luther was a strong believer in sola fide, saved by faith alone. And so some of the things that James says about wondering if, can you really be saved by that faith that has no deeds? Luther reacts against. Now, of course, he's also reacting against a reigning notion of the day that if you just did the right things, you'd be saved. And so there's push and pull in both directions. And that's why today we wonder faith and or works, faith and or deeds. I had to reach out to a Lutheran friend um, to find exactly where it was said because there is a quote that I've heard time and time again, but I, couldn't, I didn't know where it was written down. And a, a friend of mine who's a Lutheran minister texted me back and said, what, you don't have Luther's complete works? Indeed, I don't. Thankfully, he does, and was able to send me from volume 35, that's longer than I would have read. From volume 35, Martin Luther says this as he introduces the New Testament. In a word... St. John's Gospel and his first epistle, St. Paul's epistles, especially Romans, Galatians, and Ephesians, remember epistle is just a word for letter, and St. Peter's first epistle are the books that show you Christ 
and teach you all that is necessary and salvific for you to know, even if you were never to see or hear any other book or doctrine. Therefore, St. James's epistle is really an epistle of straw compared to these others, for it has nothing of the nature of the gospel about it, but more of this in other prefaces. It has nothing of the nature of the gospel about it, says Martin Luther. I'm going to go nice on Luther because I promised uh, my friend that I would do no Luther bashing this morning. But to engage this debate, what matters most, faith or works? Does James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26 really have no character of the gospel? No alignment with what Jesus said or did? Now, at the outset, just so we set the foundation in place so that you don't hear what I'm not saying for the rest of the sermon. As Jed pointed all of us to the cross, as a reminder, it is not our works, it's not what we do that earns our salvation. We are saved by grace alone through faith. That is foundationally true. But once again, what James wants to hold in tension is where does the rubber meet the road with living out our faith? If we say that we're people full of love, but our actions don't reflect loving actions, then do we have love? If we say that we've been forgiven and it's so good to be forgiven, but we don't forgive others, have we really embraced the nature of what it is to experience grace? James simply wants to know, is there more to it than what you say you believe? There has to be more to it than that. To take Luther to task ever so gently I also invite you, if your Bibles are open and you want to follow along, we'll be going to a few different places in the Gospel of Matthew today. Because James is picking up on the same things that Jesus taught. He's maybe repackaging them a little bit. But James fits perfectly well with the Gospel of Matthew. And you can find these in other Gospels, but I thought for consistency's sake, we'd take all of the Gospel texts from Matthew. James uses the example of if you see someone without clothes and food, And you just say to them, hey, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed. May it be well with you. Not only are you not helping, you're almost insulting their situation. Say, oh, I wish things were better for them. But we don't do anything. James has a problem with that. And so did Jesus. Matthew chapter 25, towards the end of the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew 25, beginning at verse 31. Jesus is explaining the character of the kingdom and how things will be in the last days. Matthew 25, beginning at verse 31, Jesus says this, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him. And he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. 
Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we ever see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. And then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. And they also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? And he will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Whatever you did for one of the least of these, you did for me. Whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Jesus, which this is the Gospels we're talking about, the very character of the Gospels, Jesus talks about the king separating the sheep and the goats based upon what they did or did not do. James is picking up that same idea when he talks about seeing someone who's hungry or without food seeing the stranger who craves hospitality and belonging. If you just say, hey, go in peace. I hope things are well for you. But do nothing. If there's no rubber meeting the road for showing grace and love as we have been shown grace and love by God the Father, then what good is it? Faith, if not accompanied by action, is dead. It doesn't take away from the need to articulate our faith from the value of being able to say the Apostles' Creed and know what it means. But it does bring into question, is there any evidence of this faith that we claim to have? Even Jesus talks about separating the sheep and the goats based upon what they did or did not do. Because each one of us, everyone in the world, is created in the image of God. Remember last week from favoritism and from our own confession and assurance today. There might be things that help obscure us seeing that. But every person, every tribe and language, nation and tongue, every person who voted differently than you, all of us are created in the image of God. Therefore, what you did or did not do for the least, you did or did not do for the one in whose image we are created. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. James says, you believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. There's this simple theological understanding of, sure, there is one God. Even the demons believe that. They believe one of the same things that we believe. They know to be true, something that we know to be true. Which brings us to another point that Jesus makes that's similar to what James is bringing us into. Matthew chapter 21, verses 21 through 82, or 21, 28 through 32. A little bit dyslexic this morning.
In Matthew 21, beginning at verse 28, What do you think, says Jesus? There is a man who had two sons, and who went to the first and said, Son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing, and he answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of these two did what his father wanted? The first, they answered Jesus. And Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. One son says, I won't, but he does what he was told. One son says he will, but doesn't. My dad loved this parable growing up on the farm. We heard this a lot. Just as a little reminder, which is not quite the intent that Jesus was using it for, but nonetheless, it made us familiar with our Bible. James is getting at the same thing that Jesus is getting at. That I will show you my faith by my deeds. I will show that there is evidence for my belief in God, my gratitude for the forgiveness that Jesus Christ gave us on the cross. By what I do, it will be a living response and not a compulsive one, not one that is extracted labor, but one that is a freely given gift in response to the free gift of grace that we have been given. It's not just believing that there is one God. As James says, even the demons believe this. But it is a matter of going and doing. North Holland, we do this really quite well and often in a variety of ways and in many ways that are unseen. Just this week, we got a letter, an email from Ken Tenkink, just once again expressing his gratitude for all the work that was done at Warwick. And it takes him a little while to actually walk around the grounds and see everything that North Holland did so that when he does send us the letter, he tries to itemize all the things that we accomplished. And we do our best to make it a long letter. Because it is a matter of showing that this is what we do, this is what we're good at, and so we do it. Because we can. Because it's worth putting time and investment into blessing others, into helping others, because we have been blessed and helped by God. So sometimes we might not say the right thing. Sometimes we might botch what we say, might not come across the way we wanted. But in the end, the measure of integrity of faith that James gives us, that Jesus gives us, is the son who maybe didn't say it right, but he did it right. The character of the gospel. James goes on to use Abraham as an example on this whole faith and works. Now, this is a great point of contention because the Apostle Paul uses the same example to say that it is, in fact, only faith, not acts, that Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. But James, in verse 22, says, You see that his, Abraham, his faith and his actions were working together. They were synchronized. It's not only what Abraham said and believed, the ways in which he worshipped, the rituals that he performed, but it was also that his belief, the rubber met the road. There was a desire to obey God, even when it was confusing and scary. For Abraham, the rubber met the road 
when Abram was asked to bring his son, his only son whom he loved, to be sacrificed. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. Now once again, considered righteous in the eyes of God, that is done through grace. But James's hang-up point is this. What if Abraham had said, God, everything I have is yours. I trust you. I love you. Everything I have is yours. And then God made a request of, okay, well, if everything is mine, then give me that. And Abraham said, no. Then the rubber no longer meets the road with what we say and what we do. Going back to James 1, that's what makes us unstable, double-minded in all that we do if we say one and do another. And where James would push us to is make sure that you do well. There's a simple verse in Matthew chapter 3, verse 9, when John the Baptist is being contested by the Pharisees. And he tells them, And do not think that you can say we have Abraham as our father, because God can raise up from stones children. It's not just who you're related to, but that your faith and your actions are working together. That your righteousness is evidenced in repentance, in the desire to do good for the world to do good for the least of these, knowing that we do this for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. All of the controversy of this book could be summed up and dismissed with verse 22. His faith and his actions were working together. If you've been rereading James, you know that's the thesis that he's after here. And he's also anticipating as a wise prophet of God that pretty soon it'll get hard and people will fall away when things get hard. This is a book of perseverance and persistence. One quote that comes to mind is actually from the Christopher Nolan Batman trilogy. You would expect nothing less. I do have a cardboard cutout of Batman, but it's at home and I forgot to pick it up when I went to see my mom after surgery. Um, Be one more thing to put in Pastor Audrey's office to frighten her. But at the, at the, towards the climax of the movie, Rachel Dawes does not know who Batman is. She doesn't know it's her childhood friend, Bruce Wayne. And he quotes back to her a line that she told him earlier. When he tried to argue that he was a good guy, and she said, you know what, it's not who you are, it's what you do that defines you. And so in this beautiful moment of suspense when the train is headed into the city and yet Rachel and Batman have time for this exchange even though they're losing time on the train destroying the whole city. But nonetheless, you know, it's a beautiful moment in cinematography so they have to savor it a little bit. But Batman looks back at Rachel and says to her, it's not who I am underneath that defines me but what I do. Don't worry about who it is under the cape and cowl. Pay attention to what I do. And after service, Jed will do an imitation of Christian Bale's voice with that line. It's not what I do. It's not who I am underneath, but what I do that defines me. James is asking Christians scattered throughout the known world at that time to define themselves by what they do. Not to say that they can work their way into heaven. Not to say that they can be saved by all their good deeds but to define themselves as people of good works. If you have experienced grace, show grace to others. If you have inherited freedom, 
show freedom and liberty to others, to live a life of gratitude if you truly are grateful, to let the rubber meet the road with all that we believe and say. Almost by contrast, James goes from using Abraham as an example to using Rahab as an example. Rahab, the prostitute who assisted the spies in Jericho and sent them out the other way and kept them safe. And they, in fact, saved Rahab and her family because of it. It's interesting that last week in James, when James sums up the law, he simply says, if you've broken the law at any one point, you've broken all of it. And he doesn't parse out, oh, you can be a murderer but not an adulterer. He says, if you've done anything wrong, you're a lawbreaker. That's the bottom line that James operates off of. This is also to de-escalate favoritism that, oh, there's some people who are really bad, but then there's others who are not so bad. James is saying there's no favoritism here. A lawbreaker is a lawbreaker. There's no in and out about it. James uses that description. You have become a lawbreaker. And yet here, noting Rahab, sure, we can hold some sins against her. And yet James talks of her as being counted righteous for what she did. There's a similar story that Jesus spoke into in Matthew chapter 9. In Matthew chapter 9, specifically in verse 20, this is the story of the the woman who was bleeding for 12 years. Beginning of verse 20, we're told, as Jesus walked through the crowd, a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. And she said to herself, if only I touch his cloak, I will be healed. And Jesus turned and saw her and said, take heart, daughter, for your faith has healed you, or your faith has made you well. She believed. She had faith. But that faith was rooted so deeply that it sprouted up in conviction. It wasn't just the idea that Jesus could heal her. It was her conviction that led to action that if I just touch the edge of Jesus' cloak, I will be healed. The same way that woman would be considered unclean by, by Levitical law. And yet she knew. She had action that came out of conviction that came out of her faith. In the same way that Rahab had conviction that these were the people of God and that led her to action to assist them. This is really all that James is after, is that action and conviction are congruous with word and thought. So I leave you to wonder this week, where is it that we celebrate ways in which our faith and our actions are congruous, where they work together quite well, the places in our lives where we don't get stuck, but then also to consider, to consider maybe on your daily commute or at some point in the day, Where is it that my faith does not line up between action and word? Where what I believe doesn't seem to have the same effect on what I do? I don't think James is an epistle of straw. James is simply a retelling of the gospel in perfect congruency with what Jesus taught. But it just has a little bit of punch to it. It's got some bite to it, and James says things very concisely, very quickly, and sometimes a bit harshly. But ultimately what he wants is for our faith and our actions to work together. 
And the foundation is still that our faith would inform those actions. But that if there's no action to accompany faith, then what is it? This doesn't bring into any question that we're saved by the blood of Jesus Christ or wondering about what about deathbed conversions where there was no good works. For one, you can push back and wonder, was there never any good work at any point in someone's life that God never worked in and through them? And secondly, Jesus forgave the thief on the cross and said, today you will be with me in paradise. It doesn't change that we're saved by grace and faith. But the call is again and again to make sure that what we believe and have experienced is lived out in a way that has evidence that the rubber meets the road of what we believe and what we do. That your faith has made you well because you acted in conviction on what you believe. So be careful about what you believe and be also careful to live it out. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray together.